we are in, uh, we're in our final message of our uh, resting series, which really kicked off this uh, new alignment, new, new vision for our church to invite people uh, in the way of Jesus. Our, our, our mission is to, to unite people in the way of Jesus. And how we are beginning to do that is through a concept called the rule of life. And so you've heard us talk about that over the past couple of weeks. We have these workbooks that are hanging on the doors, or you can find one on the welcome table, or you can go online to our website, mosaicmhk.com slash rule of life, and find a digital workbook for you to fill out. So if you're still holding back, kind of skeptical, not sure if that's for you, that's totally fine. It really is an invitation, uh, but it is our way of saying, here's how we follow Jesus, the first uh, uh, emphasis it has been resting. And so we wanted to start with rest. We, we thought instead of, of, of casting a vision to take the next hill, uh, I just kind of feel like we're bone tired, right? And we need to be invited into first our relationship with God, where he, uh, we, we remember he doesn't need anything from us. Like, like the kingdom of God doesn't rise and fall based on our behavior. It doesn't rise and fall based on even the mission of our particular church. God has invited us into a relationship. We, want, we wanted to start with rest as a, as a countercultural statement to say, first and foremost, we belong to Jesus. And that's the most important thing about us. So we in the future will, will talk about these other uh, emphases, uh, learning and gathering and praying and contributing uh, for the next, probably over the next couple of years, honestly, because we, we don't want to just be a community that memorizes facts about w- what we ought to do to follow Jesus. We actually want to follow Jesus in our behavior, in our everyday lives. And so this is a practice that we, we, we are doing. We are practicing the way of Jesus. So today, what I want to talk about is uh, spiritual growth. And I want to talk about uh, the, how to determine where you are in your growth journey with Jesus. And so we'll share something actually that, that I first learned of just a, a, a f- several years ago that I wish someone would have told me about 20 years ago when I was first starting out on my journey. So the, this, is, this is not just information to memorize. This is, this is hopefully a grid or, or hopefully a map so that you can understand the journey that Jesus invites all of us on. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a gift to be able to share that with you all, and especially if this is new to you. But before we get there, and before I, I share that with you, I wanna set some context. I, I came across a quote recently by philosopher and author James K. A. Smith. He says in his book, You Are What You Love, he says, to be human is to be on the move, pursuing something after something. We are like existential sharks. I, I love that phrase. We are like existential sharks. We have to move to live. We are not just static containers for ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed toward some end. So for Smith, and, and I agree with him, to be alive means to be in motion. It's not necessarily physical motion. Uh, it, it's not necessarily like physical activity that he's talking about, but a kind of soul striving toward what is next. To grow and thus to change. We're wired for growth. And even though we resist change, we're wired to change, to learn, to, to improve, to make the world and ourselves a better place. We are wired in our DNA and in our creation for that. So that also means uh, to be stuck on our journey and to stubbornly resist growth and change means to actively resist our design. Applying this to our life in God, that means we are, we, we are wired neurobiologically. We, we, we have brain development even into our latter years that are, neurons are still rewiring and, and, and learning better and more efficient pathways for this information. We were designed by God to function best connected to him, explore his nature and a closely knit relationship to him, to be filled with wonder and awe to have our minds blown and to come back hungry for more. We were made to know God. And because God is eternal, that means you can't find the end. Once you crest a hill of God, you realize how much more that you have to explore. And it, it, it enlivens your soul. We were meant to push the borders of the knowledge of God 
and beg for more because we are so ecstatically in love with him. We are made for that. And so to sit and stubbornly say, no, I, I am content. I've learned everything I need to know about God. I've developed as much as a human being as possible is to actively work against our wiring and our design. So let's consider what it means to grow and to be formed spiritually in this closely knit relationship. Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey, which is one of the best intro to spiritual formation books that, that I've read, he says this, spiritual formation is a process of being formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. And I love that, that really simple and really elegant way of putting what does it mean to grow spiritually. It's helpful to me for different reasons. First, it tells us that maturity isn't a destination we arrive at overnight. It's a process. Second, it sets the end goal as becoming like Jesus in every way. We don't justify our sin by pointing out what others are doing. We see our example in Jesus of what it looks like to become people of love. We don't look at each other to determine what is permissible. We look to Jesus to see what is possible. And then finally, formation for the sake of others explains the results as a contrast to our culture, cultural narrative of Project Self. The end goal of learning is just to come to full self-actualization, to be your truest, bestest, I know that's not a word, bestest self. No, spiritual formation, growth, to become more like Jesus is for the sake of others, to love others as Jesus would if he were you. Mahalan continues, he says, everyone is in a process of spiritual formation. Every thought we hold, every decision we make, every action we take, every emotion we allow to shape our behavior, every response we make to the world around us, every relationship we enter into, every reaction we have toward the things that surround us and impinge upon our lives, all these things little by little are shaping us into some kind of being. We are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive character of that image. Destruction not only to ourselves, but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness upon them. This wholeness or destructiveness radically conditions our relationship with God, ourselves, and others, as, we, as well as our involvement in the dehumanizing structures and dynamics of the broken world around us. We become either agents of God's healing and liberating grace or carriers of the sickness of the world. The direction of our spiritual growth infuses all we do with imitations of either life or death. Spiritual formation is not an option. The inescapable conclusion is that life itself is a process of spiritual development. The only choice we have is whether that growth moves us towards wholeness in Christ or toward an increasingly dehumanized and destructive mode of being. It's a lot, right? But I, I, would, I, would, I would appeal to you that it's true and we need to take that seriously. So next, let's talk if, if everyone is in a process of spiritual growth and it's inescapable. How do you measure spiritual growth? Like what is the end goal? To become more like Jesus, right? When we say that, that's, that sounds good and nice and true. But how, how do you know if you're becoming more like Jesus or less like Jesus? How do you know if you're loving people more or loving people less? Like how do you, how do you quantitatively analyze that? And so one simple place to discern this, I think, is in a conversation at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. After he's been resurrected, but before he ascends to the Father, he has a conversation with his disciples. He stops for those 40 days along the way to, to in particular, restore one of his disciples, uh, Peter, John 21, Peter, remember, he had denied Jesus three times. Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no way, I'm going down fighting. And he denies Jesus three times, and he's grieved. And so Jesus cooks some breakfast for them. They don't recognize him at first, but then it's like, oh, yeah, it's this is Jesus. We're having a meal because Jesus loves food. Glory to God. Jesus loves food. So so he's cooking breakfast for, for the guys, and... Uh, he sits down next to Peter and, and he asks them three questions to counterbalance the hurt, the trauma, and the disappointment of what he had just gone through as he restores Peter back to ministry. Peter was hurt, though, because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Do you really? It's like, search your heart, find the answer. Do you love me? 
He said, Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you. Now check this out. Very truly, I tell you. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you. Uh, Some versions say carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So so Christian history says that that Peter was martyred for his belief in Jesus uh, by being crucified upside down because he didn't find himself worthy enough to be crucified the normal way like Jesus was, but upside down as an act of of, of humble uh, servanthood to Jesus. What we see here, though, is that when Jesus is saying, when you were younger and then when you're older, we see him setting forth a vision for spiritual growth in Peter's life during this time where he's restoring Peter. This also serves as a template for us as well. When we're young in faith, as in life, we do whatever we want. We have agency, we have, we have freedom, we feel like. We, we, autonomy is one of our culture's highest goals, that we can do what we want, spend what we want, go where we want, say whatever it is we want. But when we're mature, we are surrendered to God's will. And we go where sometimes, oftentimes, talk to older saints, older, older believers in Jesus. It's about surrender. You, you don't do the things you want to do because you're following Jesus. And you do go places and say things and, and serve other people that you don't want to. But you do it because you're following Jesus. And it's in that place of surrender that you find your greatest joy. It's not in the cultural lie that you can say what you want, spin what you want, go where you want, do whatever it is that you want that you can afford, and on credit, you can go beyond that. That's not our highest joy. Henry Nouwen expands on the story and explains our culture's value for autonomy over seeking God's will. So in the name of Jesus, and and that little book, it's a fantastic book. You can read it in like 20 minutes says this, the, the world says when you were young, you were dependent and you could go where you, not go where you wanted, but when you grow old, you'll be able to make your own decisions, go your own way and control your own destiny. You see how it's flipped from Jesus's understanding and idea? Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and a willingness to be led where you would rather not go. Let me read that again, because that is the, the answer to the question, how do you determine how mature you are? Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is this. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. For now, and I agree, his definition of spiritual maturity means being so completely surrendered to God that we use our entire heart, soul, strength, and mind for his purposes and not our own, especially in the face of the desire to do the complete opposite. We become the kind of people who God pours his love into so we ourselves are poured out into the world. So now let's look at if, if, if spiritual formation is inescapable and we can actually self-critically, kindly, but critically look at how well do I do that? How well am I surrendered to God so that he can lead me where I don't wanna go and I still go joyfully? Let's look at the process to become mature. This is what we often don't talk about in churches. It's something where I was in church for almost 20 years and had never heard anyone put it so clearly and succinctly of this is how you become more like Jesus. And here's how you determine how far along on that journey you are. So in their book, The Critical Journey, and and I'll tell you this, today's gonna feel a little bit different. It's gonna seem super pragmatic. And we're not gonna do a, a, a very deep dive into the scripture because I, I mostly wanna give you a roadmap and, 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 and so that we can hold it up as a mirror to ourselves and then we can find also places in scripture where this is reflected, okay? So if you're looking for like some deep, like I'm not throwing any Greek at you today, okay? I don't even know Greek that well. So you're, you're gonna be spared because I can't pronounce it very well. Anyway, so it, this may seem like, oh, that was different. And that's okay sometimes. Different isn't bad or wrong. This is just gonna be for, for a, a gift, hopefully, to our church so that we can determine where we are and where we need to go and how we need to get there. So in their book, The Critical Journey, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulech lay out six different stages of faith a Christian goes through on as they progress in spiritual maturity. So the critical journey then acts as a kind of map for us, helping us understand the progression of maturing faith as we navigate the twists and turns of life and encounter God within them. 
So the book itself employs stage theory to describe these time frames. Similarly, as we would describe the stages of human development, newborn, infant, toddler, pre-K, elementary, so on. Stage theory has been used throughout church history, though they didn't have the name for it. Stage history, as in human, they, they knew how babies developed, so they had that paradigm, and they were able to map it on human growth and development, specifically in spirituality. It's been used like... Uh, Pilgrim's Progress by, by John Bunyan uses stage theory to talk about the, the progression of faith that Christian goes on. Okay, St. Teresa of Avila talks about stage theory when she talks about the interior castles or the interior mansions of the soul and as you progress through prayer through each one. Okay, Jesus also used stage theory, though he didn't call it that, but he used the understanding of we go from one place to the next place Sometimes linearly, but often that's uh, useful as an understanding of how it develops. He uses stage theory to describe how the kingdom of God mysteriously comes and develops and, and advances. So in Mark 4, 26, he says this, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk. First, right, then the head, then the full kernel in the head, and as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Seed, stock, kernel, etc. We can see Jesus using this progression to see how the kingdom works mysteriously. It, it is mysterious, right? How, how does that, we, science can explain all the different stages, but when you, when you get down to it, you go, how does that actually happen? How do those cells divide and actually do that, right? How does it go from seed to kernel to stock to, to seed again and, and perpetuate that cycle of life? We could see that the Apostle Paul regularly uses human growth as a metaphor for spiritual growth, such as seeing those who he's nurturing in the faith as children, wanting them to desire the meat of the kingdom, the meat of the word, instead of the milk that they had become accustomed to so easily receiving from someone else. So in the critical journey, the progression of maturity are laid out like this. First, recognition of God. We'll go deeper into each one. Recognition of God, then the life of discipleship, after that, the productive life. Fourth, the journey inward, then the wall, which isn't really a stage, but rather an obstacle on the journey. Fifth, the journey outward, and then finally, the life of love. So I wanna talk just, just briefly. There, there's a lot more that could be said about each one. I wanna talk about briefly what these stages look like, and then later, we're gonna talk a little bit about how, where we get stuck in each one and how to progress. So first, in stage one, there's a recognition of God. There's a sense of awe, there's a, a desire for God. There's awareness. It's almost like uh, you, you see someone who goes into stage one from, from being unaware of God or unappreciative of, of any kind of higher power. It's like you, you watch them go into the 3D IMAX theater and see Star Wars for the first time. All at once, they're experiencing all that magnificent glory. That's what it's like for someone in stage one is like everything's new and wonderful. There's an innocence to them. Uh, where they're just receiving. Uh, they, they look for teachers. They need mentors and help uh, to be poured into. And they just, like when the doors of the church are open, they're there. They're the first ones to come. They're the last ones to leave. They're just hungry for anything of God because it's so wonderful. There, there may be a sense of like sinfulness. They, they come to, to, to an awareness of God's awe and grandeur and their littleness in the universe, but this appreciation that God still sees them and loves them. Okay, it comes uh, sometimes with a sense of purpose in, the li uh, in life, an awakening to the grandeur of God. It often is how you see it. So that's stage one. Stage two is then the life of discipleship. Meaning for people in this stage comes from belonging. They they look for a, a group to attach themselves to a community, hopefully, to be a part of. Uh, they follow teachers around. They're, they they continue to soak up knowledge. Um, and, and so they're reading a lot or, or listening to podcasts or if the church has multiple services, they're, they're there at each one taking notes in the front row, things like that. Meaning comes from, I'm a part of this group 
and this group it has the truth and knows God. There's a sense of rightness from a particular leader or belief system. You oftentimes see people who just read a, book, a, a, a certain author and they read every book that author has written or all the podcasts that they could find listening to that pastor. Um, they, they ascribe to certain belief, like they're, they're really big into their denomination or the, the conference system that they're a part of, or they just go really, get really into that. And you can see that that's like a badge of pride or a sense of, of, of identity because they're a part of that. The security for people in stage two is that our faith and uh, there, it, there is, let me say this again. People at stage two find great security in the faith of the group that they're a part of or the teacher that they're a part of or the ministry that they're a part of, the mailing list they're on, whatever that is. And that there's danger for anyone outside of this system of belief. Anyone that's not connected to the church or not a part of the network, it's like, ooh, we don't know how their faith is really with God. We're kind of worried about them. That's stage two. Stage three, now here's what we're not gonna do, by the way. We're not gonna treat this like the Enneagram, like, oh yeah, that was such a stage two statement you just made. We're like, hey, what, what stage are you? I think you're four, I think I'm five, I think I'm at the wall. We're not gonna do that. You can self-assess and that's fine, but we're not gonna like label people with these stages as much as we want to sometimes. Okay, stage three is the productive life. We realize that we have a unique contribution to make both in our career and, and in the church. And there's a sense of meaning that develops. Like you discover, I have spiritual gifts. I'm, I'm actually good and proficient. People want to listen to me. Uh, maybe there's some leadership opportunities that develop. And there's that sense of identity from being able to, to lead or give back or serve or, or just be like rise the ranks in your career. It may be a busy season. Hello, you know, young moms and dads in your 30s, especially. Like 30s are just, you feel this, right? Like career, family, church, it's just all, every side is, is pressing on you. And when you're good at something, more people want, it, want you to do good things. Like you're, you're invited to sit on boards, serve on nonprofits. Maybe you're, you're headhunted for a bigger role and there's moving involved, uh, other opportunities like that. So it, it just... It feels like there's a lot on your plate all at the same time, but there's also an energy that comes from it because it's like, I'm, I'm good at what I do and people want me to do it more. We, in this stage, in, in stage three, in the productive life, start to take responsibility for others. So like I said, there might be team leadership opportunities, serving on a nonprofit board, uh, mentoring others, discipling others. You start to notice where people don't have as much uh, maybe information, wisdom, knowledge, and you start to fill that in. You, you again, take responsibility for someone else's spiritual journey or maybe at work, uh, their, their career trajectory, and, and you serve in a coaching role. And then stage four is called the journey inward. Uh, at this stage, things that once worked are no longer working. A life or spiritual crisis often jolts us uh, from just business as usual. We, we're just kind of unaware and we, we're going along and things are going well and our 401k is looking good and all of a sudden there's a life crisis. It, it might be uh, a death in the family. It might be a divorce, significant birthday or a milestone or an anniversary of something significant. Maybe it's a loss of career. Maybe your company downsizes you or, or sells the company to somebody else and you find yourself at a, at a, at a, in a season of loss. There could be a relational betrayal or disappointment that happens. So there's a search for more. It's more in a direction. You're looking for answers, but not concrete answers of certainty. It's much more like, where do I go from here? I'm not sure that I, I trust myself. I'm not sure who to trust. I'm not sure what voices to listen to. But it's in stage four that God is released from the box that we've tried to contain him in. All this, all this, uh, the knowledge that we've grown up with, that God is this way and, and you can be certain of these things, we start to kind of question those. We, we take the lid off the box. Maybe we take some sides off the box. Maybe we disassemble the box all together and just go, I don't know who God is anymore to me. Um, it looks on the outside like a loss of faith. Um, it might be the, the beginning stages of a deconstruction or a doubt journey that you go on, but it really is a forging of an inner uh, spiritual and personal path forward, uh, one that may be nuanced differently even from what the faith community that you've been a part of holds to. So you may not even feel like there's a safe place 
like not physically or emotionally unsafe, but you just don't know who to ask these questions to. You'll find at stage four, a lot of people start going online because churches traditionally has not, have not been a safe place to, to ask hard questions and to sit with people in long seasons of doubt. And so people start to find community, not physically, but more digitally. Um, you know, you see younger Gen Z people going on TikTok and creating conversations and community around videos and things like that because people are hungry uh, to, or, uh, not hungry, hungry is the wrong word, but it's more pe- people are t- looking for the opportunity to just ask questions where they won't be shut down, dismissed, or minimized in all these ways. Okay, we're gonna take a breath because I feel, I feel like a lot of us were like, one, two, and three, like I, that was okay. But four is like, wow, you surprised me with that one. I wasn't ready for that. And that's, I think that's kind of the point of stage four is like you never get ready. You don't, you don't journey into stage four. Stage four really journeys into you in that way. But you can take a deep breath because before it gets better, it gets harder, I will say. Um, the next stage, which is really not a stage, but a stop, it's a full stop called the wall. It's more of a crisis. It's, it's uh, silence, lostness, loneliness, doubt, deconstruction. The wall might be for us in, in the moment that we live in, in church history and in, in the culture that we're in, might be the most important thing to name. As hard as stage four is to like grasp, the wall is, um, it is more difficult. It is more, um, you feel like God is silent and distant you're not sure if you sin to cause this or like someone screwed up or you're breaking off generate. I mean, you break out your tool, tool bag of like, I got to get Satan out of my life. Like, I don't know what's going on. You do, you do all of those things to try and negotiate your way forward past the wall. Um, it's important for us, I think, to name this because there are a lot of people who are at this place have been at this place or are going to be at this place that don't realize it because we don't talk about it and they feel like they messed up and they are the problem. Which in reality, this is a step along the journey of spiritual growth. And oftentimes when you enter into stage four and you hit the wall, it's not because you screwed up. It's actually because you became healthy enough, resilient enough, and pressed into God enough to be able to handle this. So if I can just give you a little bit of hope if that's where you're at or that's where you've been. So much of our expression of faith in the modernized West is based around learning through information retention. But God is mostly interested in our character development. The wall is a place where all of our learning and all of our experience, all of our accolades come to rest and count for nothing. It feels like all growth is halted, but it's truly a place of our greatest and deepest growth. It's not the fastest place of growth, but at the wall, it's the deepest place of growth. It's a complete stripping of ourselves before God. God brings us to this place. We're stripped of all ego. It's a reminder that all growth is grace. It's a gift God bestows upon us, and we exist on his timeline, not him on ours. We may even stand before the wall several times on our spiritual progression, Uh, Janet Hagberg says this in an article, Stages of Faith, the wall in my experience is the place in the faith journey that is the least recognized and most avoided by most of us, including the church. It is usually rife with old personal baggage from overwhelming shame to punitive theologies. Our work in the wall involves new territory that is not comfortable for the traditions from which we come. In, most, in many of the more conservative traditions, there's suspicion of psychology and of any journeys that are not dictated by Scripture and controlled by the church. In the more liberal traditions, there is less interested with the life of the heart or spirit and a distrust of miraculous healing. So I'll tell you this, the most revered heroes of our faith, both in the Bible and, and, and outside of the Bible, incur, encountered a crisis of faith that to us may look like the wall. Uh, Moses, Elijah, Esther, Mary, Martha, Augustine, Ignatius, John Wesley, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, all entered a time at the wall and felt its silence and its loneliness. Those who have journeyed to the wall will tell you it's not something you go around. It's kind of like, like, like people who have experienced grief. They don't tell you you get around grief. They don't tell you grief goes away. You just get through it. And that's like being at the wall well, uh, sometimes we can lag 
and one or both, uh, oh, let me back up. St. John of the Cross called it, you may be familiar with his writings, the dark night of the soul. Again, it was decades before I heard anything. And it wasn't, it was from a pastor friend of mine that told me, you should read this book. And then I heard another pastor on a podcast talk about the critical journey. The dark night of the soul, the, the, the wall are not things the Western church really has embraced as a spiritual step and as a spiritual stage on the journey of growth. And I think we're the worst for it because there are a lot of people hitting this wall, hitting these stages and have no idea what is going on. The wall, it's interesting. The wall is a place where our psychological health and our spiritual health converge. While sometimes we can lag in one or both of these areas, someone who progresses through the wall is gaining awareness and freedom from their soul hurt and their trauma and woundings while also surrendering more and more of their lives to the leadership of Jesus. I want you to think about this. You know people that don't want anything to do with church and with God but are super self-aware and seem to be soul healthy. They've done their work. They know where their trauma came from. They're aware of their triggers. It's like, it's, it's peaceful to be around them because they're not constantly like trying to fight you or correct you or do whatever. You also know people uh, who want everything to do with God. They, they're, they're super submitted to God's will. They, they are, they're serving and loving people as best as they know how, but they're super unaware. They're on edge all the time. They're triggered by little offenses. They don't have an awareness. They they often project onto other people. They don't have an awareness of how they come across to others. The wall is a place where both of these things converge. That God brings you to a point of total ego surrender. And you will not progress through it until your traumas and woundings and hurt are processed and you make progress on them as well. Janet Hagberg says again, a point comes on the spiritual journey. However, when a healing of one's early religious experience must occur in order for the wholeness to be realized, this healing requires a transformation of the person and of the traditional religious images, symbols, and words. Such transformation allows for a new way to experience these traditions and therefore a whole new appreciation of spirituality. It's coming full circle to wholeness. So, Enough with the wall, right? Let's, let's move on to the, the, the better stuff. And it's, it's really not. It really is all of God, and it is for our good and his glory. Uh, stage five, though, is the journey outward. It's here where we are surrendered to God and have a profound sense of acceptance. We experience deep calm and deep stillness. Our concern and focus is on others' best interest. We want to be closer to God no matter what's asked of us or the consequences. Gratitude. People that are in stage five and beyond, gratitude like flows effortlessly. It's like, how are you that happy about everything, right? How are you happy about sunny days and rainbows and rainstorms and, you know, coffee and and traffic jams? Like, how, how are you grateful? How are you so grateful for even the inconveniences of life? It's like people like this, you just want to be around because it's so easy and you feel so loved and seen and appreciated. That's what stage five is like. Stage six is really more of an extension of stage five. It's a blending together. You really can't tease one or other apart, but there's a furtherance of stage five where stage six is the life of love. People here have become love. They've been so poured into by God. They become like what it's like to be around Jesus. You just sense Jesus. Sorry, that's me. That's not God. That might be, I don't know. You just sense like, wow, this must be what being around Jesus was like for people because they're so humble and they're so grateful and they love you so much. Like you could ask them for the hardest thing of income and they'd be like, yeah, sure, no problem. You wanna borrow my truck? Keep it for a year, sure thing. You know, I'll fill it up with gas. It's just like, how are you like this? I wanna be like you when I grow up, right? Now, the, the, the letdown is, we have so few examples of what people in stage six look like because so few people actually journey this long towards wholeness for a sustained amount of, of time over their lives. The authors would say, we'll give you examples, but I'm not sure you would know any of them. It's, it's the quiet saints. They, they often never make it uh, to have book deals or podcasts. They're not trying to take attention for themselves. They just want to give away love. 
They just wanna love Jesus well. They wanna finish their lives well. And they wanna share him with as many people as they can sit across from and, and just love uh, them. There's utter joy here in giving away love and their wisdom. It's, it starts to be this like, you, they're looking for people to just pour out their wisdom. They're not forcing anything on people. They're not trying to convince people that they've been places and seen things and done things. It's just like, I'm here if you want it. I'm here if you need it. I'll be here if you reject it. I just want to love. That's what it's like. So as you hear this, you may experience a bit of confusion about where exactly you fall along these stages. And that's natural because spiritual growth really isn't linear. Linear. It's not like stage, it's like when does a baby become you know, an infant to a toddler? Maybe around where they get up and fall over a bunch of times. It's not really this clear category that happens exactly at nine months or 12 months or whatever. It's kind of like that for the spiritual journey. You may recognize certain traits of a stage where you go, I think that's me, but I'm also like over here and that's okay. Uh, you may especially experience some confusion if you're in a transition space right now. Uh, Peace Cazero calls it the confusing in between where the world looks upside down. You can't make heads or tails of anything. You're not sure where God is or what voices to trust. If you're there, we love you. Just be patient and you're doing okay. I want you to know that the transitions are sometimes the hardest part because you feel like it's all your fault. And I would just say, if that's you, just keep taking the next step because you're doing okay, right? So to help, let me offer a few additional points for each stage, as in where we become stuck, how do we progress? And I wanna give you a few dangers just to be aware of on the journey, okay? So where we become what the authors call caged at each stage, right? Because we can like hit the wall and regress back to an earlier stage or hit a point in our life and we just say, no, no, I'm okay. God, I, I don't want that. I don't want that surrender. I don't wanna give that up. And we can actually regress back. Um, sometimes certain church traditions call it backsliding. I think that's a, it's a funny but appropriate term for something like that. Stage one, we become caged when we fail to join ourselves to a faith community or never fully make the commitment to explore this higher power we become aware of. I'm going to go through these real quick. You might take a picture or we'll have the notes online uh, uh, on our website later. Stage two, we form a rigidity from black and white thinking that may be expressed through an us versus them thinking. Self-righteousness is rampant and we define ourselves by who we are not like or what behavior we won't tolerate. There's a lot of culture warring that looks to me like it's stage two. Not just culture warring on the right, it's equally a part on the left politically, right? It's people with black and white, us and them uh, thinking that our culture seems to just throw gasoline on. The partisanship, the divisions that we experience, it's a lot of people vying for our attention in stage two and it's a lot of it is just a, a show. That's a sermon from another time. That's for free today. We're gonna move on, okay? Stage three, we get stuck in stage three where we run our lives on ambition rather than obedience. We can actually use God's gifts to run from God himself. And burnout here is a very real trap. Stage four, we become stuck. When we become disconnected from our community, because you never unlearn the earlier lessons of progressing through stage one and two is, is, is finding a mentor and, and finding community. You can't progress in later stages by undoing the things you, that were good that you learned earlier, right? I'm sure musicians still play scales to warm up, right? You still learn and know those lessons in earlier stages of development, right? We also become uh, uh, stuck when we don't move through deconstruction to reconstruction around Jesus and authentic faith. And so we continue deconstruction so far, all we have is a destroyed or destructed faith. At the wall, we get stuck when we try to avoid the wall altogether. When we bargain with the wall, we, we negotiate with the wall. Um, we, we, uh, we try our methods of going over or under or around or we poke holes or drill holes through the wall to get through it. Stage five and six, here's the good news. You don't really get stuck in stages five and six because stage five and six is just greater surrender to Jesus that you've already experienced as great joy. So it's basically like, just hang on, don't die for a while, and you will become love as you follow Jesus. That's good news, right? Like you're just, you've said yes to Jesus so much. It's just second, you know, it's just habit now. 
So how to progress from each stage to the other. This is not set in stone. It's not concrete. Some of this is different for different people depending on what you're going through. But I'll I'll tell you this, going from stage one to two is finding a mentor or a group to join and commit to a faith community to continue on in learning and experiencing God. Our culture says you can do it on your own, for yourself, by yourself. The, The antidote to that is I am a part of this group that I can ask hard questions to. I'm a part, I, I receive from this pastor, or this teacher, or this faith community. I'm getting mentored by these people. That is how you progress. And you learn to experience God for yourself, his presence and his voice. You really immerse yourself into that. Stage two, uh, progressing from stage two to three, is understanding nuance and theological positions. And you recognize that there, are, there is beauty in different streams of Christ's global church. You know, you know the church is bigger than Manhattan, Kansas, 4th and Houston. You know there's people that love Jesus all over the world with all kinds of different dialects and skin colors. All throughout human history, people have loved God. And we can learn from them. They have things to teach us. There are certain places where our faith is anemic because we've actually shut out maybe the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Or if you're Armenian, maybe it's the Reformed Church you need to learn from or vice versa. Maybe if you're, you, you don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit, get to, get to befriend a, a charismatic person with their hair on fire. They'll, they'll, they'll teach us some things. And it's really beautiful and good. That's how you progress from stage two to three. From three to four, this is one of the most difficult Because we move from security, right? Stage three is I'm proficient at what I do. Stage four is giving that up and saying, maybe I don't know everything. Actually, I probably don't know a lot of things. It's actually, you know, as you get older and you learn, the more you realize you don't know. That's what's happening in the progression from stage three uh, to four, specifically spiritually. You realize God is a lot bigger than I thought. I have a lot more questions some of the things that people told me actually aren't biblical or true, or it's maybe more opinion or cultural than, than timeless biblical uh, doctrine. It usually, it's sta- going from stage three to four, doesn't happen quickly. It happens after a series of events or a sudden crisis that ushers us into stage four. And, and it causes us to, to look at our strongly held beliefs and, and open up our hands and, and maybe say, I don't know. Stage four, to, stay, to the wall, to stage five, is where we rediscover God and who he is in our lives. Often this requires a guide, a counselor, a spiritual director, a therapist, uh, someone who is willing to be a spiritual friend to you, who's outside of your life just enough to have perspective. And it's surrender again and again. In the midst of the fog, amidst of the I don't know, it's God, I just, I just wanna follow you. And stages five and six, again, there's a blending and there's, there's almost, I don't want to say guaranteed, but there's, there, is a, there's a yes in your spirit that has been developed through hardship. So when you, when you, you hang in there and keep following Jesus, uh, all you need is simply patience to go from five to six until you, you, yeah, so you keep becoming a person of love until Jesus calls you back home. So three dangers, okay? I, I know this is a lot. So you don't have to get it all today. Maybe there's just one takeaway for you, but I'm gonna give you three dangers just to consider. First, there's a lack of awareness. There's a danger because a lot of us just weren't aware that there's a progression of our faith. We've never been told this. We've never been taught this, but there's also a danger of awareness and that we misdiagnose where we are on the journey. We think because we've been following Jesus for 40 years, that we're automatically in stage five. It may be that we're in stage two. And that's quite offensive to find out I'm not as mature as I thought I was, or even as, as the church or our culture was structured to tell me that I was, I actually have a long way to go. Second is the desire for quick fixes. That's the second danger. We want some sort of breakthrough experience, some sort of life hack some sort of like just little, like the secret to tell us how to hack the system and to go from stage two to stage six within maybe not overnight, but give it a week and I could do it, right? We want a quick fix to our spirituality, a light bulb moment. We want the right book, the right conference, 
man, the, the right chord progression in the, in the worship music that sends me to heaven. Like, I need that. Fuel my heart with... And it's like, no, it, it doesn't actually work like that. But we want it. We want those things that tell us you will arrive overnight. Your kids are all going to love Jesus. Your 401k is going to be stacked and you'll be able to retire in comfort. And that is the good life. And this paradigm really wrecks all of that. It is really offensive to the American dream, the American way of life, and life in our Western privileged culture. Again, I, I want to show you something that we went to week one, that, that next kind of triangle. Um, week one, we have more context for this, what we're about to show you. This is called intentional spiritual formation. Uh, Dallas Willard worked on this, the, the golden triangle, basically showing you um, this is what change theory in the way of Jesus really does look like. We like to take little pieces and go, I'm good at this, so I'll focus all my time on this. I'll get really good at it, and I'll mature. And, and Jesus says, actually, we need a bunch of things working together in a system in our life that, that will, as we submit to it, will produce change in the long run. Uh, up top, there's teaching. We need good teaching from the Scripture. We, we love the Bible here. We are, we are unabashedly big fans of Jesus, and we will never, I will never apologize for that. I don't know about you all, but I, I will never apologize for that. So we need the, the words of Jesus teaching us what his ways are like. We need, off to the right, we need community. We need a group of people to attach and commit our lives to. This, this is doing a lot of heavy lifting because community might also be your support system, therapists and counselors and spiritual directors there. And we need practices. Uh, we like to think if, if I find a good church and listen to good teaching, I'll become more like Jesus. And it's actually like we have to develop the spiritual rhythms and habits to do the things that Jesus does, right? That's where our rule of life comes in. That's why every week I, I give you, here's how to put this into practice. Here's a next step. Here's something that you can do because I don't want just your head. I don't want just your heart, but I want your, the whole of your body coming in alignment with Jesus through your actions. Okay. In the middle of that, we realize we can't change ourselves. I've been married almost 15 years. I can't change her. I've tried. She's tried changing me. Like my kids are a whole different story. I'm not even sure what I can do for myself, but the Holy Spirit is the change agent. He's this silent partner that sits behind this and continually points and pokes and prods and says, will you surrender that? That's not like Jesus. Would you like to be more like Jesus? Here's the next step you can take. So he's the one that empowers and directs and guides in the midst of that. And then at, at the bottom, that's the active things. Those are all the active, the things we participate with are yes, the passive things are much more, these are the things that happen to us through life. And this is why spiritual growth and formation takes time and you can't get it overnight is because it's through trials and tribulations that we enter into the kingdom of God. I'm not just talking the little times where you get cut off in traffic or you know, you go to the gym and you can't find the front parking spot so you have to park in the back and you're mad but you're like, why am I mad that I step extra steps to the gym? This doesn't make any sense. Jesus, I need help, right? It's, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's, it's the ups and downs of grief and loss and betrayal. It's hoping against hope that God will show up and even when he does, it's not like you expected it and it's continuing continuing to say yes. It's in that backdrop where change takes root and slowly develops in our lives. Yeah, there are suddenlies. There are moments. I love, I love the, I love the and suddenly of the Bible where God, like people are just waiting and God shows up. Here's what Mulholland says about this. The hidden work of God is a nurturing that prepares us for what appears to be a quantum leap forward. The day of Pentecost came after 10 days. Was it 10 days, Justin? Was it 10 days of day and night prayer? Day of Pentecost. So, they, so the day of Pentecost was the end suddenly, but it was built on the 10 days of day and night upper room prayer against the 40 days of Jesus walking with them, against the three and a half years of walking personally with Jesus. The end suddenly comes when the Holy Spirit drops and descends on them. Do you get my point? A lot of this stuff happens over time under the surface. And a lot of times we see the, the light switch go on and we go, wow, that's just, that person's an overnight success. Or, wow, God really showed up in that person's life. Okay, I'm going to continue. This is a good quote. What we see as a quantum leap may actually be the only smallest part of what has been going on for a long, steady process 
of grace working far beyond our knowing and understanding to bring us to that point where we are ready for God to move us into a new level of spiritual awareness and a new depth of wholeness and relationship with God in Christ. There simply is no instantaneous event of putting your quarter in the slot and seeing spiritual formation drop down where you can reach it whole and complete. Our culture, however, tends to train us in this manner. You do the right thing, put the money in the proper slot, push the right button, and get the product you want at the bottom. The idea of spiritual growth as a continuous process rubs harshly against the deeply ingrained instant gratification mode of our culture. Perhaps one of the first spiritual struggles for genuine growth towards wholeness will be against this strongly entrenched approach to life. There is much in our culture that infiltrates our attitudes unconsciously and makes us expect spiritual formation to happen instantaneously rather than through the steady progress of a process. So third, after we work through being aware of where we are, after we work through the the patience instead of the quick fix for spiritual growth, we have to be aware that there's a war against maturity. Now, I'm not talking like culture war. I'm just saying everything in our lives is set up to keep you in, in, in emotional, uh, spiritual infancy in your lives. Many people view spiritual formation mainly as a hobby to be tried out because of this. They go, oh, that's a new teaching. I think I'll read Willard for a while. Or Ruth Haley Barton seems interesting. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll put that on my, my to-do list or to-read list. But many people don't treat this as a lifelong process, a lifelong journey that really does never end until we meet Jesus face-to-face. In fact, both our culture and, and I will take ownership of this as a pastor, our culture and most churches, including our own in the past, are geared to help us perfect our lives in stages one, two, and three. You've heard it said, find your purpose, find your people, find your proficiency. And that's the sum total of growth that we oftentimes offer both culturally and in the church. Just, you know, find what you're alive for, uh, get some community around you, and then serve and give back. And then that's it? And churches and, and organizations all over say, well, yeah, that's what we have to give you. And what we do is we keep each other busy trying to achieve and attain, build big organizations with emotionally and spiritually immature people, including the leaders and the pastors. And we pretend like we've all got it together. Most people, good, loving, Jesus-loving and adoring, church-involved people, the highest that we ever get really is stage three. And that's not a judgment against anyone here or anyone not here. That is an indictment against the systems of the local church that just want to build and build and grow and grow and don't really care about how mature we are or how much we all look like Jesus. I think, I think that system stinks. And I take full ownership of being a pastor and an elder, of being responsible for that. Why we're doing this rule of life and why we're giving you diagrams about change theory and telling you about spiritual process is because we're saying no more. Can we buy into a system that keeps us all stunted and actually far from Jesus while telling us everything's gonna be okay, okay? So after hearing that, we're friends, right? We're all friends, (laughs) like that's, okay. So when presented with the growth stages of the critical journey, There are some who receive it as a breath of fresh air. It's like, this makes so much sense to me. And there are oftentimes people that resist it. And sometimes you go, you vacillate between the two. So I'll I'll give you that too. It may be some people reject it because they, they go, you're telling me I'm someone that I didn't think I was and I don't like it. It makes me feel uncomfortable and I don't like you as a pastor now. That's actually happened to me before, you know, so... I've done, I've, I've done, I've forgiven. I've done my work, okay? Uh, but that's, that's the reality. As we go, I, I don't like this. I reject this outright, and I reject you for telling me it. Um, there are some, though, that hear this and reject it, and it's not as much that they reject spiritual growth as a process. They go, I'm so far back, and I just, I have too far to go. I just give up. And I would say to, to each, both 
you know, rejecting it out of anger and, and, and rejecting it out of shame, I offer, we offer kindness. Like this is one motif. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. There's no judgment. Again, we're not gonna go up and go, oh, you're at stage three. Let me give you three tips and you can get to stage four. No problem, kicking and screaming, probably. You're welcome. Thank me later. Uh, we're not gonna go, you know, oh, you're, this person is such stage six. None of, else, uh, of you all are there. Aren't they so great? You're not, like, we're not, we're not gonna do that. What we're gonna do is offer patience and kindness along the journey wherever you're at. There's no shame and there's no condemnation. And if it fits and if it works, that's great. If, if it doesn't, that's totally okay too. It really is, as Mulholland's book says, it's, it's an invitation to a journey of growth to be, become more like Jesus. What, what my hope for you is today is that you start to sense an ache. Maybe it's already been there, but maybe this is a reminder or a refresher of like, I'm, I'm not where I wanna be and I'm not who I wanna be and this gives me a model. This gives me a goal to say, I want to be more like them. I want to be more like Jesus. And I have a few things that I can do to get there. I want you to sense that ache of being a people of love and knowing that it really is possible. It's been possible for people in the, in the ancient Near East. It's been possible for people in the, the slums of India. It's possible for people and the affluence, yes, even of, of the Midwest in Manhattan, Kansas, it's possible for a people to become love and to love and give away and find joy and find peace in the midst of everything else that's going on. To be a people of love, to, to really to be with Jesus, to be like Jesus in every way and to do the things that Jesus does. My hope is that we can be a people who are fully alive to, to who we are and, and whose we are. So I want to end with this story. I'm way over time. I apologize ahead of time. Okay. Um, worship team, you can come on up. I'll make this brief. In, in the mid-1800s, there was a doc, doctor named Simowise, Ignaz Simowise, and he worked at the Vienna General Hospital, and it was a top-notch research hospital. But they had a terrible problem because in the maternity ward, um, no one could seem to figure out why every one in 10 women who gave birth at that hospital died. The, the, the maternal mortality rate was just off the charts. And he became obsessed with figuring out what this was. And he just couldn't. And the only thing he could figure out is in other sections of the hospital where the maternal mortality rate was lower is they had midwives that were doing the labor and delivery. And, and his section was the, the research section full of doctors that, that ought to know how to do this process and do it well. They had women who were so scared of that hospital and, and ending up in his ward that they would give birth on the street and then go to the hospital inside. So he was just overcome with just, just a, a frustration and, and anger that he couldn't figure this out. So he actually went on a four-month uh, visit to another hospital and when he came back, he was astonished to find that the maternal mortality rate had dropped significantly when he wasn't there. So he tore the place apart, you know, figuratively, to get to the bottom of it. And he soon realized, because his, his hospital was a research hospital, uh, the only difference between the doctors and the midwives is that the doctors perform research on cadavers and then would, would go into labor and, and delivery with these women. And so uh, they didn't have any kind of knowledge about germs, germ theory, any of uh, uh, understanding of how, how surfaces could, could, that touched one thing could transmit uh, to another thing, but that's exactly what had happened. And so he instituted a strict regimen of Lyme and, and chlorine, um, and, and the, inf uh, the maternal mortality rate went to one in 100, from one in 10 to one in 100. And it sunk into him and the other doctors like how much tragedy that he had inflicted in a good heart, trying to save and heal how much death he had actually brought into the world because of his lack of awareness. And if you remember earlier, Robert Mahone talked about our wanting to do good, but our lack of awareness inflicting damage onto our, ourselves and our families and others. And I think right now, you're invited into a journey. You're already on a journey is the reality. And now you're aware of what steps to take next. What we need is the yes in our hearts to say, Jesus, whatever it takes and whatever it costs me, I'm tired of inflicting the damage. 
Many of us have loved as best we could, have served as best we could, have given of ourselves best as we could. And what comes back to us is damage and hurt, and we don't know why we do those things. And Jesus would say, it's follow me, and I will make you fishers of people. Before, you went wherever you wanted, but now as you're grown, now as you're mature, you're willing and able to go where I send you. And that's the place we stand. So why don't you stand with me? And I want us to just answer this question. We're gonna do a time of communion so you can sit with it and reflect on it. Where is Jesus leading me? Here's how we put this into practice. Where is Jesus leading me where I would rather not go? There's no judgment. There's no condemnation. There's only you and Jesus dialoguing about that question. So to end our time, we're gonna partake of communion. It's a meal that Jesus gave us to commemorate his life and his death and his resurrection. And so we have open communion, which means all we ask is that you're in a right relationship with God through Jesus. And it's important to be in a right relationship with others, specifically those who are in the body of Christ. So when you're ready, you can come up the center aisle, you can take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and return back to your seats. Uh, we also have a gluten-free or, or a much you know, more sanitary, if you go that direction, option in that middle, if you're looking for that. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas, where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.